Welcome back to Out the Gate, the podcast about sailing and adventure on and around San Francisco Bay. So last week, we saw off Wilbur Spall aboard his nine-foot sailboat, Chubby Girl, as he attempted to break the record for the smallest boat ever to sail to Hawaii from California. Well, a quick update on Wilbur. Unfortunately, Chubby Girl took a wave over the quarter, breaking the mainsail and causing a leak in its main hatch. So a week out now, Wilbur has decided to return to San Francisco for repairs. No word yet on whether he plans to set out again. This week, we're talking to another single-hander, Philippe Jamont, who just a few days ago, on the afternoon of October 1st, sailed under the Golden Gate Bridge to start what he hopes will be a record-breaking solo, non-stop, unassisted, westbound circumnavigation, meaning he'll leave all the major capes to starboard. The crazy part is, Philippe started sailing in 2013, but in that time he's done a crossing of the Atlantic as crew in the Clipper race, raced and won the 2018 single-handed Transpac in an Olsen 30, and found and outfitted his current boat, a Class 40 racing boat named Changabang. He estimates the journey is going to take him about 200 days all the way around the world. So before he left, on a beautiful evening a couple weeks ago, I drove down to Pillar Point Marina in Half Moon Bay and sat down with Philippe, socially distanced, of course, in the cockpit of his boat to talk about the adventure. Well, this is great. It's not often I get to do an interview aboard a boat, so this is a special treat. Mm -hmm. Let me first just have you introduce yourself. Okay, so name is uh, Philippe Jamot, uh, originally from uh, Belgium and moved over here uh, in 2001. Uh, you know, married, have a daughter and um, started sailing about in 2013. Okay. And uh, other than that, um, you know, what can I say about me? Uh, regular professional um, IT guy, aspire, I guess, to challenges, uh, pushing myself in life. Uh-huh. Which is probably why I'm on this boat, but... <laughs> yeah, so what is the challenge that you're going to undertake? Yeah, originally it was going to be, for me, just a circumnavigation, uh, you know, go around the world um, solo. Just uh, a circumnavigation. Uh, yeah, <laughs> right. And... Uh, <laughs> In talking with uh, buddies in the world of sailing, there was this notion that there was no record for this, you know, going west from San Francisco. And so uh, it is also an attempt at uh, now not setting a record because it was just set a couple of years ago where it was recently recognized, but uh, I guess doing better than the previous uh, skipper. Uh, but the course is leaving from San Francisco and getting back to San Francisco. And considering trade winds when leaving from San Francisco, it makes sense to go west because, you know, here in the Pacific, north and south, trade winds are, um, are blowing west 
Uh, and so in the Indian Ocean, same story, you know, if you go above the high there, trade winds are blowing west. If you go above the high in the South Atlantic, trade winds are blowing west. <laughs> Coming back from, you know, after the horn is probably, a, can be a, a little challenge. Um, uh, so it's, it's, it's supposedly going to be a lot of trade wind sailing. Um, but you are also then going around the horn from east to west, which is not right. the typical way. It is a typical, although I guess, uh, you know, until, what is it, the Panama Canal was put in place, it was not a typical, it was grueling, mm. but it was not a typical. Yeah. Um, you know, because you had to both go both ways. There were races, I believe, that were going west uh, at the time, um, and I believe people were waiting off Staten Island uh, to get proper weather window. So that is an option as well. The idea is to do it nonstop, mm -hmm. single-handed, obviously. Unassisted. Unassisted. And what is the current record? So the current record is held by uh, Bill Hatfield, who is an ocean cruising club, I think, honorary member. I think he tried three times. Okay. And uh, finally succeeded. And I believe the time is 259 days and some hours and minutes and seconds. But yeah. but he had a 38-foot North Shore 38, I think that's what it is. So his average speed, I'm guessing, must have been between three and four knots, although I haven't made the computation. So um, with this boat, hopefully, you know, things will go a little faster. It yes, will be work, but it will... Hopefully be faster. <laughs> <laughs> this is, um, well, not a cruising boat. It is a racing boat, but tell us more about it. Yeah, so, you know, safety is fairly high on the top of priorities for me for this trip. Right? Uh -huh. And I guess there's two school of thought, you know, get a tank. Right, um, OSAL 32. Right, yeah. Um, your good old cruising boat, a Freya 39, uh, a Valiant 40, you know, just to be in the 40-foot, you know, type uh -huh. of... Uh, and then there's the class 40 boats. Um, well, you, you, were, you had the open 40s, and these boats are designed for short-handed offshore sailing. Uh, they have inherent safety features, um, you know, watertight bulkheads, um, reserve flotation, twin rudders. Um, they have a, you know, very sturdy rig, at least the first generations because they were built very solidly. These days, they're more towards the racing spectrum. So, it looks like a small open sixty, like a open yeah, transom that's, here. That's exactly yeah the same spirit there. You know the open forty, the open sixty. You know yeah. the open sixty became the IMOCAS sixties, and the open forties I guess became the class forty. I guess the other component is, if you look at Freya thirty nines or Valiant forties or these boats, they're not particularly cheap you know even though they've aged you know and so for less money I could get a boat like this um, and I also personally prefer that everything is visible inside mm. there's no joinery work you know mm -hmm. you see the hull you don't have to break furniture if you need to get to a breach in the hull so yeah that's to me is, um, is a benefit as well now there's no head there's only a bucket, you know. <laughs> it's it's a bit sparse down below <laughs> as I, I'm looking. Um, right. So so a bucket for for six months. Six yeah, that's months. a lot. 
Good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I have a few spare buckets. <laughs> um, and then there's other, you know, the other component, which is the boat is is a little faster, right? You know, they they can uh, they can plane, and so they have a lot of sail area. And that's when you talk about safety, you're talking about being able to go fast enough to have that safety factor. Yeah, exactly. You you're not stuck uh, going six knots. Uh, you you know you, you have options in terms of possibly getting out of harm way if something were to materialize. Yeah. So, so that's another benefit that I saw for these boats. So. And what do you hope to have as your average speed? I don't know. Hopefully, uh, six and a half to seven and a half, possibly more. I, mm -hmm. You know, I don't know. I mean. It, I will say that I could have had more training with the boat, developing more um, expertise in terms of pushing the boat with the spinnakers and whatnot. But the trip is going to be, you know, 26,000 miles. So yeah. hopefully as I get through the process, uh, the boat and I will get to know each other. <laughs> you will have time, yes. <laughs> yeah, and uh, speed will increase because it actually increased on like for, you know, Corehurst to the boat speed increase, but it really wasn't going anywhere. <laughs> so hopefully that's not going to be my story. Yes, yeah. yeah, so let's hope you don't step over the side. <laughs> exactly. Playing chess with death there. If anybody doesn't know the Donald Crowhurst story, go look it up. It's a fascinating one, yeah. tragic one. Oh, there's a movie slash documentary about it too. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. But that brings up a really interesting question. This is a racing boat, and when in races sailors push these boats to their limit what is your plan you have a desire to to break a record but how much are you going to be pushing and how much are you going to be being a little more conservative in order to sail another day yeah i think uh it's going to be the latter you know because uh to a certain extent the hardest uh, will be towards the end you know, going down to cape horn running the horn and coming back from cape horn you're in harm's way there for what 20 25 degrees of latitude going down and up we'll see but i think i'll you know i won't i guess what i'm giving myself as a goal is you know being at 75 percent of the boats polar and if i can achieve that you know i'll be fast uh, yeah because i'm just looking at it there you know in eight knots of wind with the true wind angle at 90 degrees, I should be doing eight knots. Oh, which, wow. So, but that's not when it's going to happen. I'm probably doing six and a half. But how often am I going to be in eight knots of wind too? So, right, that's true. Not often. Well, exactly. So you know, it's uh, you know the boat is it's got great potential. So um, it's going to be a matter of yeah, pushing the boat, um, getting yeah. the big sails up. Um, and as you said, you'll certainly get more comfortable with the boat right. as you go on right and we got a baby spinnaker uh that's the sail the ocean cruising club is uh funding through their grant program uh, it's only it's only uh 100 square meters okay uh, which is fairly big to begin with but <laughs> for this boat it's small uh, and so it's my baby spinnaker where to practice a little more not that i haven't tried the spinnakers but uh it's about keeping the sails up in 20, 25 knots of wind. 
What's your preparation been like? Um, you're right here. We're sitting here in Half Moon Bay, and you can get right out to the ocean. Um, how often you've been going out and testing? The to be fair, I haven't tallied the time I've gone out. I'm going to say it was uh, above 20 for sure. Um, okay. The first thing is we sailed back from San Diego. Oh, okay. Um, San Diego to Santa Barbara. Well, no, um, Oxnard. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from Oxnard over here, and we got in a little bit of a... We got 30, 35 knots, you know, coming into Half Moon Bay, which was nice. The boat loves it. You know, two reefs, stay sail, doing 8 to 12 knots. So, <laughs> you know, com- You said we, you, you weren't single-handed? No, I had a, um, a sailing buddy that who joined me um, uh, during that trip. So, And then uh, after that, it was a matter of becoming familiar with the boat, you know, casting off and docking on your own because I do everything on my own so it's a fairly sizable boat to move in and out um, especially because it's got a lot of freeboard and it's got a lot of uh, um, windage and so you need to be quick on your feet or you're back into the docks but um, so getting the sails out one by one and um, trying the ballast as well seeing what works you know getting the spinnaker in the water. Yeah, everything's big, so every time something goes wrong, it's multiplied. You know, just the foot of the spinnaker getting in the water, that's taking water. That's yeah. a lot of weight to you know, carry, um, carry out of the water. So um, everything has to be managed. You know, brute force doesn't really, does, doesn't really do it. <laughs> so, um, so that's been the practice and then I guess I did what the long pack you know which is uh, what the folks do for the single-handed trans pack qualifying cruise basically 200 miles out 200 miles back and then I went up to Bodega Bay I guess mm-hmm. just past Point Reyes yeah I broke something then I turned around and came back but that was a good 25 to 35 knots of upwind pounding uh, and the boat was fine so breaking something's good practice too yeah exactly (laughs) that'll probably happen more than a few times right right um so you touch on there brute strength isn't gonna gonna cut it which brings up the uh the mental aspect of this um how have you thought about preparing for that including sleep deprivation Mm -hmm. yeah so (laughs) When I started sailing solo in the bay on Merit 25s, and um, I discovered we have the Single-Handed Sailing Society in San Francisco Bay, and one of their member, Andrew Evans, put out a book, you know, sailing, single-handed sailing tips and techniques. Uh, and his first chapter is about the mental challenge, which was a surprise to me. It was, you know, oh, tell me how to do, you know, sailing maneuvers. But uh, he has a point. I mean, the weakest uh, link in the chain on the boat on long distance sailing is the human factor. Whether it's sickness, you know, hallucinations, sleep deprivation, injuries, you know, whatever. It's uh, it's the most critical and the weakest link uh, at the same time. Just like I did for the single-handed transpack, you know, it's. I like to go back to that race because I did a lot of writing before leaving. You know, I read about you know 
the growth mindset you know i read about positive thinking i did i read about doing tai chi to center the body and the mind like i wrote a story of how i won the single-handed trans pack before leaving right this is just okay because i had read something somebody said hey i wanted to be a successful entrepreneur so i wrote the story of how i became a successful entrepreneur and she ultimately became one but <laughs> the story was before it happened that's great and so in for this event the magnitude you know is such that it's really hard to process you know the what's what it's going to be like you know six months alone at sea i have done some writing again again meditation what um has been happening is I've been going through stages, I guess, of just the the planning excitement, you know, finding a boat, you know, getting the right hardware and fixing things, and and then as I get closer, realizing the magnitude of what embarking um, embarking on and the fear that comes with it, right? Because these are things I've not done before. You know, how am I going to handle, you know? 30-foot waves on the beam, you know, what do I do? How do I deploy a sea anchor? I've not done that before, you know. So what do I do if I break, you know, rigging? What do I do if the bass goes off, you know? So there's a lot of stuff that started brewing, you know, over time it passes. And now I think I'm at a place where I've gone through the fear, the anxiety, and I'm just curious of what's going to happen, you know. It, I guess, could summarize it, what's in it for me, although I don't like it, because it, there's some sort of a, a sense of entitlement to saying that what's in it for me. It's more, well, I'm curious to see what's going to happen. You know, well, yeah, what's what's going to happen? It's, that's a great way to put it. I love that. To just the, You've come, it's almost like a place of peace where you're beyond the fear and you're saying, yeah. let's just see. Exactly, right. Which is surprising how it all, this was unmanaged. I mean, it was managed in the sense, okay, you know, doing a, a bit of meditating practice, nothing regular. I'm not like every morning at 6 a.m. It's just yeah. as I feel the anxiety level coming up, you know, do something about it. And then just trusting the process, I guess, at some point. It doesn't change the fact that the fear is still there, right? You know? Was it Sir Robin Knox Johnson who says, you know, who goes to sea without fear is a fool? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Something to that extent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely still, you know, the unknown. And um, it's time now for me, I guess, to, this is a big adventure. This is a lot of money, lots of preparation, lots of my time, lots of stress for the family. You know, it's time for me to look at it as such, you know, it's a lifetime experience. <laughs> You said you only started sailing in 2013, right? So right. seven years ago. I guess, yeah. <laughs> How did this idea first crop into your head? You said you're somebody who likes challenges. Have you taken other challenges before? Not of this magnitude, I guess. Um, no, I mean, yeah, I went to the Himalayas and I trekked around the Annapurnas, uh, but that's kind of a touristy spot for trekkers I did triathlons um, and then I was training uh, quite a bit for that for a while but when I I guess when I embrace an activity I like to give myself 
lofty goals possibly just mm -hmm. try to for those to be some sort of an engine uh, to drive motivate and when I started sailing alone I guess one thing led to another you know reading books of single-handed sailors that don't talk about sailing in the bay they talk about you know sailing across oceans <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah I think that's how the seed was planted and you know and I, I'll admit too there's a bit of escapism as well right I mean I Naomi James I think was the first woman to circumnavigate solo non-stop she mentioned escapism in her book as well and that was yeah I think it's okay to admit that you know especially in the current state of <laughs> <laughs> who wouldn't want to escape a pandemic yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah once the ID was planted then it was okay I'll need more experience and so I started building that experience and in safe environments, I guess. So that was the purpose of the single-handed transpack. Yeah. I want to get to the single-handed transpack. But first <laughs> I want to ask, how did you break this to your family and how did they receive it? Oh, I, I don't remember how I broke it, but I know it broke something. <laughs> <laughs> it's a crazy adventure. I mean, there's the level of risk is non-negligible um, it's six months away from the family um, it's a sink you know it's a, it's a it's a hole for money and and also it's a lost opportunity for you know a year year and a half of not working you know the time before the time after you know, finding another job and whatnot so it's not something that's easy to swallow i guess if your partner comes to you with sure. a proposition like that <laughs> yeah. it took a little bit of processing uh, on both sides although for me it was determined but ultimately you know um, i think uh, my wife warmed up to it and there may also have been a, an attitude of yeah you know he says that but <laughs> he's not really gonna do it <laughs> and to a certain extent until i'm a thousand miles offshore you know on my way to australia i haven't really started you know because yeah. um you know it's after a week i might be like oh this is nah <laughs> yeah. but uh it's same for my mother right and she um i think only last week she's like okay yeah i guess he's doing it yeah um so that's hard particularly if they don't have any experience with sailing or know what it means exactly yeah so most of what they know is through me and i tend to see what's wrong with things not mm. what's right with things so i'll be talking about the risks not about the albatrosses and you know the beautiful sunset the moonrise you know whatnot Maybe I should do more of that if things would be easier. <laughs> and I mentioned the stories of people you heard from them on Wednesday and on Thursday, you never hear from them. Their, their boat is never found and we never found them again. But you know, there are stories like that. <laughs> there are stories like that. And those are not the ones that you necessarily want to share with the family before you're going off. Right. Um, but that's the rationale behind a boat like this because the reserve flotation 
even if in the watertight bulkheads, even if there's a hull breach, these boats will float, mm-hmm. you know, for a significant amount of time. We're not talking 30 minutes, we're talking, you know, possibly several days. Yeah. So uh, there's a reason why I look at things from that angle. It's like, okay, can I do something about it? <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. When you did the Transpac, mm-hmm. was that in this boat or a different boat? It was a different boat, yeah. And when was when was that? And tell us what you learned from that experience. So I bought the boat, just like I bought this boat for this project voyage. I bought that boat for that particular event. It was a uh, an Olson 30 okay. that had been prepared for the Pacific Cup the year before. Well, in fact, two years before. But when I bought it, it was the year before. So it had new rigging, you know, some new sails. Everything had been done for me. And the, ra- the same rationale applied here. The boat had been refitted. This boat had been refitted for the Rue de Rome in 2018. Uh, okay. On a low budget. But a low budget on a refit for this boat is still fifty to 75,000 euros. So yeah. it's, I'd rather have someone do that <laughs> than me. Um, and so I chose that boat because it was available. That's one reason, right? And it had been prepared for the for the Pacific Cup. You know, it had all the gear. And it happened to be a good choice as well. I mean, because these boats, the Olsen 30s, if I recall correctly, had been designed for races to Hawaii. It was in Santa Cruz for a while, so I practiced out of Santa Cruz again in the winter in April, and starting April, yeah, when they opened the the harbor. Cause it, 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 it's shoals there a little bit. Okay. The boat did well in the race. I mean, because if, in fact, if you look at the top ten of all time, I believe there's got to be three Olsen thirties in the top ten uh, for that race on on corrected time. So, how did you do in that race? Yeah. So the race for me was supposed to be a safe environment to practice sailing offshore alone, safe in the sense. They have safety requirements and there are, you know, 15 to 20 rescue boats around me. It was not going to be a race for me. And then, you know, people around me were pushing me a little. So it's a race. What are you going to do about it? (laughs) And so, but I didn't want to race because in my mind, racing meant losing. And that's where I went into the mental preparation. Okay, so if I want to race, I need to be prepared to lose. But I also need to prepare, prepare to give it all I have, uh, which is a different approach, I guess. Um, and so, you know, I did all of that. You know, like I said earlier, I wrote my little story. And, uh-huh. and ultimately, um, things worked out great because I finished first on elapsed. I finished first on corrected time. And so, and I think my time is in the top five of all time. So wow. I was, I guess, in a sense, an atypical racer because people race to Hawaii to fly the spinnaker, right? Day in, day out. And for me, flying the spinnaker on the Northern 30, being six foot six, spending a lot of time at the bow, is a risky proposition. Every time I was at the bow, I was on my bottom, because <laughs> the first important thing is keep the men on the boat. <laughs> yep. And so um, I didn't fly the spinnaker in the train winds. I had two head sails, one on a whisker pole, and the other one free flying, which is a lot of sail area. It was a number two jib and a number three, but the benefit is it was always on. There was nothing to worry about. 
and no wraps, you know, nothing. So the boat was always powered. When the wind was coming down, we were slower. Yeah, but as soon as the wind was coming up, I didn't have to change sails. It was, it was, and now I think what happened too is I, I put more sail area sooner than some of the other folks did. Hmm. And so that powered me up um, for a while. Yeah, so <laughs> that's how that went. Um, there was no um, superior sailor in the fleet, I guess. Established racing brands, if you know what I'm saying. There's, yeah. you know, if, if a Stan Honey had been in the race, whatever I would have done, you know, nothing would have helped. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. You mentioned something when you were talking about that, that you're six foot six inches. Right. <laughs> what is the headroom on this boat? Oh, I can stand inside. Oh, you can? Yeah, yeah, I can stand inside. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's, That's another great. benefit, too, because when I spoke with the architect, the reason for the coach roof for him was that if the boat flips, there's a lot of coach roof under the water, and it's going to flick back. Easily, because one of the problems with the open 60s or 40s is when they flip, there's so much beam is that they stay upside down. It's almost like a catamaran. Exactly. Yeah. So he put a lot of coach roof for, to help with the, you know, for the boat to come back up. But for me, that means a lot of headroom. That is nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And a bunk that's long enough. The bunk is long enough. Yeah. Good. Yeah. That's important. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I will say one thing that it's not that you don't notice, but. It's a wooden boat, so oh, it's really? cold, it's cold molded. Not not the deck, right? That's foam and whatnot. Okay. But the hull is red cedar. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It was built in the barn in France over a two years period by a guy who was strapping a budget together. <laughs> what year? Uh, so the design, I think, was probably done in 2003, and he built it from 2004 to 2006. Okay. Yeah. So she's a wooden boat. <laughs> wooden boat. Well, that'll be another one for the, the record books. <laughs> another qualifier. Yeah. You yeah. mentioned all the research that you did. Were there any books that were particularly inspiring, stories that were particularly inspiring? I, yeah, I, I wasn't reading the books for inspiration. I was reading the books for knowledge. Then where did the inspiration come from? That was just me, right? I mean, I, I don't know. Just yeah. <laughs> you know, Inside. Yeah, I think you know. There's there may have been a desire for me to do something like a walkabout, you know, kind of this yeah. Physical and spiritual challenge slash journey, and this absolutely fits the bill. <laughs> so, so I'm going to reframe that question then. Were there any passages in any of those books where you were reading for knowledge where you look back and say, whoa, that's going to be a scary part of the world or I really want to watch out for that hap not happening? Yeah, so the book that really um, grounded me was, uh, let me make sure I get his name right, it's Alain Collas, Around the World Alone or Alone Around the World. I'm not sure which one. <laughs> But in that book, unlike other writers where they talk about their fear of the weather, the sea and whatnot, he, first I think he talks more about it mm -hmm. than in the other books that I read, but he connects it with things that are happening 
um, mm. and he speaks of his stomach dropping. And after reading his book, that's where the knots in my stomach started building up. Um, and where I had to do more, you know, processing about what's happening. Now, Alain Colas is one of the folks who disappeared at sea, you know, with his boat, would never to be found again. So <laughs> he had reason to be afraid, I guess. Yeah. I guess <laughs> but, he did. But, uh, yeah, quite of, especially the more recent books, I think, about solo sailing by the Vendée Globe skippers, they don't share much information about the sailing. Um, they sh they speak about the what's happening, but they don't share things about their navigation tactics. You know which sail they use, how much effort it is to do certain things. I suppose maybe they are protective hmm. of their experience because these we're talking professional skippers, right? But um, competitive knowledge, right? So books from uh, Sir Knox Robin Johnson were helpful. Uh, Webb Charles, Dodge Morgan, I think. Um, this book was helpful as well. Um, so it's more books from folks who, I'm not going to say the good old days, but it's from the 70s, 80s that were helpful in terms of connecting with the day-to-day -day life of what it would be like to be spend so much time at sea in all sorts of circumstances yeah so that's more about the the experience not the boat itself because the boats were quite different right yeah definitely <laughs> <laughs> let's jump back to your ground support oh, while that's you're right. off yes. randall i mean <laughs> <laughs> i was just gonna because what i i was struggling you know who was going to be I, I can't sign up somebody. I mean, it's we're talking six months, twenty-four or seven, possibly. You know, that's yeah. a serious commitment too. Yeah. You know, so I think, you know, I brought broached the subject with Randall Reeves, and he he offered his uh, support. I think what's going to happen though is there's a few folks that I um, will reach out to when when I have to. Um, I mentioned Skip Allen, Randall is one. Chris Tibbs, Christian Dumar. Uh, Jackie Philpot, Brian Boschmer. I think these six folks will be my focal group, I guess. Uh, it will also be, you know, like we were talking about earlier with for my wife, right, who's not familiar with the world of sailing. You know, in the case something happens, she has folks that she can reach out to mm -hmm. who can possibly explain what's going on. Yeah. Well, Randall has been... Uh friend of this podcast on more than any other guest and I, I understand that you you've spoken to him a few times right what advice has he given you Randall has been great uh, because he's been supportive you know he's familiar with what I'm embarking on including the questioning the fears and so I was able to talk that out with him uh, as well but the first time I saw him it was uh, in Richmond I had work being done on the boat there. He just had so many questions for me. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> and I, you know, some of them I could answer. And the reason is, he's just, he was, this was a type of boat he was not familiar with. And so he had questions about, oh, you know, how are you going to handle you know, heavy weather? Part of the answer is, I don't know. <laughs> 
and then uh, other things about the boat. But uh, oh, he, you know, he he shared. Um, he loaned me a few things. Uh, he's very supportive of this type of project, being you know one of the fools who goes to sea alone. I guess <laughs> he understands. Uh, right. It's been good to meet Randall. <clears throat> And I, the, one of the reasons I met Randall is because of Jackie Philpott, because I otherwise, I tend to stay back, but she kind of kept nudging me, and so ultimately we did meet. Yeah, I haven't seen his boat, though. When you were talking before about tanks versus speedsters, right. his is the tank. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> A big tank, though. It's like 47 foot, yes. I think, yes. So let's talk about your heavy weather tactics briefly um <laughs> you must that. have thought of it more than i don't know because you <laughs> mentioned you have a, a parachute sea anchor mm-hmm. um what do you do when because when? it's not a question of if you hit heavy weather you will hit heavy weather out there mm-hmm. you know part of the tactics i suppose are the same as with the other boats is you run before the sea if you have to yeah. um and these boats will accelerate to 25 you know knots going down a wave so um that's something i'll have to experience and see what it's like and do i i, I don't really have um i don't have a what do you call them a, a series drug where you can use to, to kind of series, slow yeah. down slow down the boat so i would have to you know trail road and whatnot but um the sea anchor uh if you know could be used possibly to park but people in these boats they what as far as i know they don't park the boat they just keep on moving keep trucking yeah yeah, yeah. now a lot of the races are happening with the wind you know behind or a beam and whatnot so if i find myself in heavy weather going up wind you know i you know i did um to a certain extent this, the weather around you know off the coast here is not fairly tame i mean it, no. so it's good training and, grounds and the boat was happy doing 30 to 35 knots you know i had three reef to stay sail and we were doing seven and a half to eight knots so now it's not you know let's see what happens if i have to do that in you know, 20 foot seas that's my main concern is what what the boat is going to be like in in very big seas so um yeah, you know, depower the sails, but keep going. I guess is the tactic. <laughs> it's one of it's. How do I prepare for that? Right. I mean, maybe if I had had more time, one more year, I could have waited for a winter storm and go out there and try that. Um, I lost my job in January, and originally the plan was for 2021. But I figured I might accelerate as well, right? So, yeah, so no good answer. And you are set to depart sometime in early October, is that correct? Right. I'm at the point where I I need to complete what I need to complete. But mentally, I am where I want it to be, which is I want everything to be ready at least two weeks in advance so that the rest is just about taking it easy, relaxing, and... um, yeah and then go (laughs) i wish you the best of luck and we will follow closely thank you trip anything else that you want to mention before we wrap this up 
I need to send out my thanks to all the folks who have been helpful. You know, I mentioned some of the names, but there's a, comp a few. There's the Ocean Cruising Club with their grant pro uh, program. There's uh, a few companies uh, who help me with, you know, reasonable discounts. Uh, Predict Wind has been very good uh, with their support. Uh, Ronstan, uh, Apsu Life, uh, Hammer Nutrition, Backpackers Pantry, and Pelagic Autopilot, uh, who's now part of Scanmar, I believe. And I'm sure I'm uh, forgetting a few. And then I have to put a plug in for myself. You know, if you wish to support, you know, yeah. you can always go to my website, uh, pjsales.com. And uh, I think the landing page has a link to a GoFundMe campaign if you wish to support. Um, be Great. one of the few donors, I guess. pjsales.com. People can read more about you and the trip there and the right. boat. And, and the, there'll be a tracker and um, hopefully I'll be posting blogs um updates as i go along as well so yeah well thank you so much it's been a pleasure to meet you and to see the boat which is very impressive uh, well thank you for the opportunity well um that was um it's generous of you to have me on the podcast so my pleasure yeah after philippe and i finished recording that interview he asked that I make sure to thank some additional people for him who are helping make his voyage possible, including the Berkeley Marine Center, Lee Johnson, Rob Tryon and the Silvergate Yacht Club, Buzz Blackett, Sylvan Burrell of UK Sailmakers, Etienne Girard of ATN, Bruce Schwab of Ocean Planet Energy, Chris Lang of Bainbridge International, Watton Sea, Jerome Semarcelli of Sailutions, and many others who are supporting him. And I want to thank all of you for supporting this podcast. If you want to let me know you're enjoying it, please either leave a comment on Apple Podcasts or shoot me an email directly at outthegatesailing at gmail.com. Well, that wraps up this week's episode. Thanks, as always, for listening. I'm Ben Shaw host and producer of the show. Until next time, smooth sailing.